0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. And now I get to preach a passage that is glorious. It is the best news in the world that we are declared righteous by God Not based upon our own merits or our own works, but on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is good news. Last Sunday night, I was down at Grace Bible Church in Pleasant Hill. It was the Reformation. Uh, They have a uh, uh, Reformation Sunday. Uh, As some of you know, maybe not all of you know, but Halloween is All Hallows' Eve, which is the eve before All Saints' Day. That's the origination of the word Halloween, is that it's uh, the evening before uh, All Saints' Day. And on uh, All Saints' Day, on 499 years ago, next year will be the 500th anniversary 1517, of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Church, where he, he didn't mean to start a Reformation. He didn't want to leave the, the, the Catholic Church. He was just wanting to have an academic discussion about the, the, the doctrine of indulgences. It was sort of like today, if, if we were to post on a forum discussion board on the Internet, in a small circle of academics, it was written in Latin. It wasn't even written in German. So most people couldn't understand it anyway, but someone translated it to German and it spread like wildfire across the countryside and it sparked the Reformation. And so uh, I just wanted to start by sharing a little bit about Luther's own experience because I think it's the experience of, of many of us when we came to Christ. Luther began his religious life as an Augustinian monk. The story is, is quite remarkable. He had gone to school. His dad was a wealthy uh, blue-collar worker. He, was a, he owned a number of copper mines. And he wanted his son, like any uh, blue-collar worker, I suppose it reminds me of my own dad, he wanted his son to go to college and get a degree and not have to work in the mines. So he sends him to college, he gets his degree, and then his dad wants him to be a lawyer. And so as Luther is going back from summer to start his law degree a storm breaks, and the lightning is so fierce, a lightning strike strikes right near him, and I don't know what his state of mind was, but he says, I'll be a monk, he shouts out. And so three days later, he joins the Augustinian um, order of monks in Europe, and it was one of the strictest monastic orders. And why he joined it is, and, and this is why it wasn't sort of just the lightning strike, he must have been tormented in his soul, because he was trying to find spiritual peace and salvation. And even when he joined the monastery, and he un- ended up getting his PhD uh, in theology, and he joined the monastery, but for 10 years, peace eluded him. He had no peace. And in his desire to find peace with God, Luther confessed every sin he could think of, because in the, in, in the doctrine of the day, if you didn't confess a sin, it wasn't forgiven, and sometimes he would confess sins for six hours a day. He was scraping his guts out, trying to find sin in his life that he could confess. In fact, he would often move on to uh, what's called purgation, purgation. Some sort of penance where he would purge his sinful affections and desires and actions by performing a series of duties in the monastery. It might require an additional hour or two of devotions. It might mean fasting, denying his body physical earthly pleasures, staying up late nights in prayer. But Luther was never certain that he'd been forgiven. He had no assurance that his sins were forgiven. Always present was this fear, have I confessed every sin? And he came to a discovery even more startling in the midst of this. There were sins that people do that aren't even known to them. How could they be confessed if they weren't known? And so Luther begins to redouble his efforts. He throws himself into all-night vigils, great bouts of fasting, all to find forgiveness and peace with God. And he said this. This is a famous quote. He said, I was indeed a pious monk. And I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I could say, if ever a monk gained heaven through monkery, it should have been I. All my monastic brethren who knew me will testify to this. I would have martyred myself to death with fasting, praying, reading, and other good works if I had remained a monk much longer. Well, what happened? Well, Luther, he obtained his doctorate. He became the professor of biblical theology at the University of Wittenberg. And during his first year in teaching, he was teaching a course on the Psalms. And he comes to a verse, Psalm 71, 2, which says, Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. And for Luther, the righteousness of God spoke of judgment, not deliverance. And so he's baffled. How in the world could God deliver him through his righteousness? So he decided to study what the scriptures have to say about the righteousness of God. And in the providence of God, he arrives at Romans 1, 16 and 17. And it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Listen to his own words on this. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. This is the meaning, he says. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Namely, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again, he says, and entered paradise itself through open gates. Well, what was Luther's discovery? It was this, the righteousness of God is not an attribute of God in this passage, but rather it's the righteousness of Christ, which God imputes to a person who puts his or her trust in him. And it's on the basis of this imputed righteousness that God declares a person to actually be righteous. In other words, the discovery of the Reformation was Christ our righteousness, And this is good news. This is the best news in the world. How can a sinner stand before a holy God? And how can God, who's perfectly holy and righteous, actually bring a sinner into his family and into his presence? Because he judged our sin on Christ. And he imputes our sin to Christ and he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. That's what this doctrine of justification is. As a monk, Luther knew he could never meet the righteousness God demanded in his law, and he would one day face his wrath. And so in Romans, he realized salvation was simply, by faith, clinging to and relying upon Christ's righteousness. Christ alone has never sinned. He alone lived a perfect life. He alone has perfect righteousness. He alone fulfilled the law and its righteous demands. And he found, Luther discovered, that salvation is simply by faith trusting in Christ's death for sinners. That at the cross, Christ takes all responsibility for the believer's sin, past, present, and future. And that to the one who truly believes, God imputes, he reckons. As a believer's own, he reckons the righteousness of Christ. To us. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We sang it this morning. This is what Luther says. One final quote from Luther, and I'll get to our passage. I, Dr. Martin Luther, the unworthy evangelist of the Lord Jesus Christ, thus think and thus affirm that this article, namely that faith alone without works justifies before God, it can never be overthrown. For Christ alone, the Son of God, died for our sins. But if he alone takes away our sins, then men with all their works are to be excluded from all concurrence in procuring the pardon of sin and justification. Nor can I embrace Christ otherwise than by faith alone. He cannot be apprehended by works. But if faith, before works follow, apprehends the Redeemer, it is undoubtedly true that faith alone, before works and without works, appropriates the benefits of redemption, which is no other than justification. This is our doctrine So the Holy Spirit teaches in the whole Christian church. In this, by the grace of God, we will stand fast. Amen, he says. This is, this is, man, this is like, this is the joy of preaching is to preach justification by faith alone. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is at the heart of God. Remember, this is the Father's plan. This is God who so loved the world, he gave his only son so that we wouldn't perish but have eternal life. He's the one who came up with this. Sometimes there's this picture that, oh man, God the Father, he's angry and he's wrathful and and the son had to come and satisfy him and sort of placate him and make him happy so that we wouldn't be judged. That's not the picture of God in the gospel. The picture of God the father in the gospel is that he so loved the world he gave his son. That in the gospel the love of God is made manifest. Where do we see it? We see it at the cross. He so loved us he didn't spare his son. And the son so loved us that he decided to willingly go and submit to the cross and become a curse for us. And the spirit so loves us that he makes the father's love known to our hearts by the indwelling presence that he gives us. And he sheds it abroad in our hearts so that we cry out what? Abba, father. And this is what Paul is fighting for in Galatians. This is what Paul is determined to die for in Galatians if he had to. This is why he's so upset with the Galatians. And he says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's put you in a trance and got you under their spell? Who's convinced you that you need to add works? Well, let's go to chapter 2. I'm getting a little bit excited. (laughs) Galatians 2, verse 15. And it's hard in this passage to see where the direct conversation with Peter ends and his rebuke of the Galatians begins. And so we saw last time, two weeks ago, when we were looking at this, that Peter was wrong because he had basically joined in with the Judaizers and pulled away from the Gentiles and said, basically, you have to become a Jew if you want to be really spiritual. If you want to be accepted by God, if you want to grow in the Christian life, you need to add all of these Jewish works of the law. And even Barnabas was carried away. And so this is the continuing conversation that Paul has with Peter when he opposed him to his face. He says, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, declared righteous. Justified means declared righteous. We're not declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is, this is sort of his... Thesis for the whole book of Galatians. This is his starting point. He's going to spend the rest of the chapters unpacking exactly what this means and the implications for our life. And the first thing we see here in verses 15 and 16 is that everyone is justified by faith. Jew is justified by faith, Gentile is justified by faith. There is no difference. And as I mentioned, it's hard to see where the transition. from his direct rebuke of Peter to his general address to the Galatian church uh, where one ends and the other begins. It's a very smooth transition. But what he says at the beginning of verse 15 by saying, we ourselves are Jews, Paul's putting himself on the same ground as Peter and Barnabas and the Judaizers. But what he says by saying this is he says, we have the same need. We have the same exact need. We are Jews by birth and we're not Gentile sinners. But yet we know that a person is not justified by being a Jew. By the works of the law. The law of Moses. But they are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16. So Gentiles were outside of the covenant. And because they were outside of the covenant, they were called sinners. So when Paul says we're Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners he's being a bit ironic here I think because Gentile sinners was sort of the common word that was used it reminds me in in church history when there was a period of time when the Christian church called anybody outside Christendom the heathen in fact you see it in when William Carey went to go to India and he went to start the modern missions movement in India There were a number of pastors that said, you don't need to go to the heathen. If God wants to save them, he can do so without your help. That was their argument. And William Carey, by the grace of God, showed throughout Scripture that God had his elect in India, and God uses means. God uses those who are sent, and so he went. And after a long trial and struggle... For many years that seemed to have no fruit, the Lord blessed that ministry and it launched the modern missions movement. And so Paul says, Yeah, those are Gentile sinners. That's how you're labeling them, but guess what? Us Jews by birth, we're sinners also. Because we can't be saved. We can't be justified by works of the law. We cannot do it. Every single person is justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And this word justified, I mentioned it, it means to be declared or reckoned righteous. This justification, this isn't some sort of quality of your life lived. It's not some sort of evaluation of how good you are. This is courtroom language. In fact, turn over to Romans 8. I just want you to see this. Romans 8, verses 33 and 34 We see the courtroom language really clear here. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's the language of courtroom. Charge, the word charge. It it was used of who's going to bring you up before the judge and charge you with something and charge you to be guilty? He says, who's going to do it? And the answer is no one. Why? It is God who justifies It's God who declares you righteous. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And so I want you to understand this language. It's crystal clear in the New Testament. This is judicial forensic language. It's the language of the courtroom. It means for God to declare you something. It's not a a quality of your life lived, it's a declaration. And that's what Luther was saying in the earlier quote. We're justified by faith alone, faith in Christ's death for sinners. Our works don't enter into the picture at all when it comes to being made right with God in justification. A person, whether Jew or Gentile, is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Back in Galatians 3, when he says works of the law... What he's referring to is all the requirements of the Mosaic law. It's more clear in chapter 3 that that's exactly what he's referring to. But we see it throughout from chapter 1 when he says, there are these these teachers who are trying to get you to go back under the law of Moses. And you were Gentiles and you were never under the law of Moses to begin with. Philippians 3 In verse 6, Paul says his pre Christian record. He says, as to righteousness by law, he was blameless. If he evaluated himself by the Mosaic law and all the requirements as to his own righteousness, at least on the outside, he was blameless. But he learned in Philippians 3 that his own record didn't justify him by God because in verse 9 he says of Philippians 3, I I don't have a righteousness of my own based upon the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And so Paul had come to realize this. And he's saying, Peter, you know this. Barnabas, you know this. We're not justified by the law. We're justified by faith in Christ. How are you trying to compel Gentiles to go back under the law? It's what we heard in Romans 3 that Ryan read this morning. There is a manifestation of the righteousness of God that's apart from the law, verse 21. It's a justification apart from works. And what's fascinating in Romans 3, we don't have the time to kind of walk through it. Paul in Romans 3 uses a number of prepositions regarding faith. He says we are justified through faith. He says we're justified by faith. Nowhere in the Bible are we said to be justified because of our faith. So even faith itself is not a work. Jesus Christ paid the debt, removed the guilt, provided the righteousness as a gift. Our faith is not the cause of our justification. The cause is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Our faith is simply the means by which we're united to him. And we get his righteousness Like that hymn of old, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I think it's also important, just by way of thinking about this, that justification is not a process either. It doesn't require our perseverance. I want you to be, in your mind, a little more precise about these terms. Salvation is the broad umbrella term. It speaks of we've been saved in the past. By faith, we are continually being saved because of union with Christ and we will be saved in the future. Salvation as a term is past, present, and future. Justification is more narrow. It's the past alone. It happened in an instant. It's not a progress. It's not a process by which our perseverance finally declares us righteous before God. That's what Luther was fighting against. It's what Paul is fighting against. Justification is not a process. It's a single one-time act of faith. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we currently, presently have peace with God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows that this justification It's based on the blood and imputed righteousness of Christ alone. And because of that, he knows it's the only real hope we have of finding acceptance with God. This is why it's so important. Some of you might be like thinking, man, Ryan is talking. He got that PhD and now he is way too technical. And you might be like glassing over your eyes or glazed over. This is really, really important because this is the only hope we have of finding acceptance before God. Even though as Christians we stumble and fall, what keeps us persevering to the end is the knowledge that our acceptance before God is not based upon us it's based upon Christ's righteousness achieved for us. That's the hope of the gospel. He did what we couldn't do. And he did it to the end. And at the cross, he said, it's finished. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's interceding for us. Even when we sin, in the midst of our sin, he's interceding for us. And the Hebrew says he's able to save to the uttermost. Those who come to faith in Him. Why? Because He ever lives to intercede for them. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So, this is what we all need Jew, Gentile, whatever race, whatever color, whatever nationality, whatever tribe this is the only means of salvation. Christ alone by grace alone, through faith alone in him. That's why he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, what is the relationship of the law to those who are justified? That's verses 17 to 21 here in this passage. So in the first two verses, he says, both Jew and Gentile are justified by faith alone. And then he says, let me tell you about how you're related to the law. Those of you who are Christians, who've been declared righteous in Christ, let me tell you how you're related to the law. Verses 17 and 18. Well, he's going to say in verse 19, I died to the law. That's my relationship to it. I'm dead to it. It no longer is a ruling force in my life. And he anticipates an objection In verses 17 and 18, he anticipates, because he's heard it from these Judaizers, that if you say you're no longer under the law as a ruling force, then you're going to live a life of sin and you're going to cause Christ to be a transgressor. The Judaizers were saying, if you don't live according to the law of Moses, you have no way to check sin and license. And therefore, Christ is responsible for your sin. That's what they're saying. But Paul says, no, when Jews like himself and Peter and Barnabas seek to be justified in Christ, they're abandoning the law of Moses as a rule, putting themselves on the same level as Gentiles. And what is that level? Sinners in need of grace to be justified. That's what he's saying here. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, verse 17, we too were found to be sinners... He says, so in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we're, we're, as it were, it seems like we're abandoning the law, and so we're found to be sinners just like the Gentiles. Does that mean Christ is a servant of sin? May it never be. He says, that is the wrong conclusion. The Judaizers concluded if Paul is abandoning the law of Moses as a means of justification, it would lead to sinful living, and therefore Christ is, is telling you to go sin." Paul says, may it never be. He says, in fact, verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, that's how I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I try to prop the law back up as a ruling force in my life, that's when I prove myself to be a transgressor. This is what Paul dealt with in Romans, right? Should we sin that grace would abound? The logical conclusion, if, if Christ is our righteousness and we're justified by faith alone, well, man, the more we sin, that would cause God's grace to look all the more marvelous, because great sinners need a great Savior. Should we sin that grace would abound? Should we be antinomian against the law? Paul says, may it never be. May it never be. Paul says, if I return to my former teaching, I would actually be a lawbreaker because it's not keeping with the true intent of the law. And by implication, he's saying that's what Peter was doing. He's being a transgressor. That's why I rebuked him to his face. So verses 19 to 21, our relationship to the law is that we're dead to it and we're alive to Christ. Here Paul presents some of his theology of the law, not all of it. But he basically says the purpose of the law was to work itself out of a job. The purpose of the law, he's going to talk about this in chapter 4, it was a guardian until Christ came. So the purpose of the law was to work itself out of a job and point us to a fuller relationship with God in Christ. He also teaches that Christ's death on the cross and our spiritual identification with him in verse 20 frees us from jurisdiction of the Mosaic law. And so our focus is to be on Christ, who lives within us, and to whom we look for direction in life. Before he was a Christian, Paul was Torah-centered, law-centered. The Christian is Christ-centered. Those who have new life in Christ have died in relation to sin, in relation to the Mosaic law, so that Paul can write in Romans 6, 14, sin will have no more dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, does that mean we're not under any law? That's a really important question. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 9 to see what Paul says here. Because that's the accusation. If you're saying we're not under the law of Moses, for those Judaizers, they were saying, you're saying you're not under any law at all. You're antinomian. And there is some teaching in the evangelical church today that leans that direction. That somehow says because we're not under... The Mosaic Law, we're no longer under any law. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 21, Paul says, For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, that is the Jews, I became as one under the law, the Mosaic Law though not being myself under the Mosaic law, that I might win those under the law. So he says, my brothers and sisters who are Jewish, who are still under the law, I I became in my life, I obeyed the requirements of the law, not because I myself am under the law, but because I wanted to win them to Christ. So he says, I'm not under the Mosaic law. Then he goes on to say, to those outside the law, that is Gentiles, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. In other words, as he said in chapter 1, I didn't compel Titus to be circumcised when we went to Jerusalem. He's outside the Mosaic law. He didn't need to be circumcised. But then look what he says. He says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. This is incredibly important. You have the Mosaic law and you have the law of Christ. And both of those are under the law of God. And Paul basically says, now that I'm a Christian, I'm no longer under the Mosaic law, but it doesn't mean I'm totally outside of the law. I'm still under the law of God, and where do we see it? He says, I'm under the law of Christ. The best illustration I heard of this is imagine if you were crossing state lines on the interstate, and the speed limit says 65, and you're going from California to Nevada, speed limit says 65 and you travel from california you cross the state border and the speed limit is still 65 you might think you're still under california law but you're not you're now under nevada law and what we see in the new testament is nine of the ten commandments on the ten commandments they're consistent from the law of moses to the law of christ which one changes i think the one that says honor the sabbath and keep it holy because paul says in colossians each man honors one day over one man honors one day over another another man honors each day alike let each one be convinced in their own mind and the practice of the early church was to change from worshiping god on the sabbath to the first day of the week the lord's day the day the lord was resurrected from the dead and this is the argument in galatians is we're no longer under jewish new moons and festivals and sabbaths and we don't have to do that anymore Because Christ has come. And he's the fulfillment of the law of Moses. And now we're under the law of Christ. And it's very similar and so it can be confusing. And so Paul is telling these Judaizers, telling the Galatians, really, you don't have to live under the law of Moses as a regulating force in your life anymore. Why? Because you're justified not by works of the law, you're justified by faith in Christ. Back in Galatians, he says, verse 20, here is my relationship with the law. Verse 19, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. How does that work? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. My relationship to the law is that now Christ is the one who's perfectly fulfilled the law on my behalf. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. Paul's going to say in Galatians 4, 6, that because you are alive, because you are sons of God the Father, the Father has the, sent the Spirit of His Son, rather, sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. All three members of the Trinity are at work to bring us into this new position that we are dead to sin, we're dead to the law, and we're alive to Christ. And now the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God. And this is the best place to be. We don't have to try to earn the Father's approval. We don't have to try to work hard in our life so finally at the end, when we stand before his judgment seat, he finally will justify us. No, having been justified by faith, we currently have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 1. This is good news. And then he says in verse 21: He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we could be right with God or get to heaven some other way, like through the Mosaic law, then Christ died for no purpose. He didn't need to come. We should have just picked ourselves up by our bootstraps, sola bootstrappa, and lived the Christian life. No. By the works of the law, no one will be justified, Paul said. Christ had to come. And what I love about this is that Jesus was not compelled to come. His arm wasn't twisted. Do you see what it said in verse 20? The son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. What motivated his coming? His love. His love. He loved us. Just think about your life. Think about the sin you've committed. The rebellion against God. We didn't deserve it. And he loved us. And he came and he died for us. Hallelujah, what a savior. That's why we celebrate the table. It brought him great joy for his body to be broken for us and his blood to be shed for us. I was overwhelmed by this sermon of Spurgeon's on this passage, which happens quite often. Um, But he was was just unpacking and, and explaining this idea of Christ loving us. I just want to read a little bit of it to you in closing the apostle knew that christ loved him and had given himself for him we may also know it it is not necessary for us to go through life merely hoping and fearing questioning and inquiring that's what luther was doing before he understood this doctrine we may come to a certain knowledge of the fact that we have an interest in the special love of Jesus Christ, that we are redeemed and we are called and we are separated to be the Lord's peculiar people, that each of us may be able to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me, I would not distress the mind of anyone who is feeble in faith, who is clinging to Christ but has never yet received full assurance of salvation but I would encourage such a person never to rest until he gets rid of all questions and is able to say without the slightest trepidation, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you hear what he's saying there? This isn't just a general statement of Christ loved us. Oh, yes, he did. But when you begin to understand and it's rooted in your heart that Christ loved me and he gave himself for me, at the cross. There is glorious hope in that. Spurgeon goes on to say it's going to affect your whole life. He says it's going it's to affect every word, every thought, every action. And how does it affect it? He says this action will seem to be set in the key of love. <laughs> that religion that does not affect the whole life is dead and worthless religion. But this is the essence of our holy faith, who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, it's going to be particularly effective in in comforting your griefs. His word is assuaging your griefs. It's a great word. Full of pain, you will say to yourself, yet he loved me. He has not sent this pain for nothing. He does not afflict willingly, for he loved me and he gave himself for me. If you are very poor, you will say to yourself, He gave the riches to the rich man, but Lazarus was in his bosom. He loved me and gave himself for me, and that is better than wealth. And if you ever come to be despised for his sake and men cast out your name as evil, you will say, I don't mind it at all. I can rejoice in it, for he loved me and he gave himself for me. I may well give up myself and my reputation and everything else for him. And then he says, It helps you in your labor. When you have something to do for Jesus that tries you when you feel disappointed and baffled and the devil tempts you to give up and run away, he says, how can I? He loved me and gave himself for me. When the torrents of love sweep through the soul, every obstacle is overcome. I can go as a missionary to the Congo, he says, when I know that he loved me and gave himself for me. I can try to preach in the streets of London when I know that he loved me and gave himself for me. And he says, finally, it'll help you in prayer. When you're at the mercy seat, trembling, asking for some great favor, tempted to fear that you'll not receive it, very strong will your faith become when you hear the whisper, who loved me and gave himself for me. The one who's interceding at the right hand of the Father. He who did not spare himself, how will he not give me everything? Everything. We ask with great confidence and assurance when we feel the force of this, don't we? And this is good news. This is good news. It's why Jesse Bogue would take his family of little ones to North Africa, to the Sahara Desert, to give his life for the gospel, because Christ loved him and gave himself for him. Hallelujah, what a savior! Father, thank you for giving your son. Thank you for this glorious truth. Justification by faith alone. I pray that my brothers and sisters would understand this. They would would work hard to, to see the significance of this. And more than anything, they would delight in it and revel in it and rejoice in it. And rest in it. Find their hope and peace in it that Father, you have declared them righteous because of the finished work of your Son. As your word says in 2 Corinthians 5, you made your Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become your righteousness in him. Oh, Father, encourage my brethren today. Those who are faint-hearted and weary, remind them, That the Lord Jesus loved them and gave himself for them. Those who have no assurance. That they feel like maybe you've cast them off. And that you're ready just to judge them at any moment. Like Luther would they find that realization. That the righteousness they're desiring is found in Christ. And that their assurance is in him. That he's done it all. And they just receive it and trust to it and cling to it by faith. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. As we come to the table now we want to celebrate and rejoice in the finished work of our Savior. May Christ be lifted up on high and seen as all sufficient and glorious. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit Calvarytruth.org.